I'm Dave. G'day, I'm Rob. And welcome to this final review for Season 10 of Doctor Who, where we're going to be looking back at the entire series. Rob, how are you? I'm really good, Dave. This is a new experience for us, because of course we're recording this on a weeknight and not freezing cold on a Sunday morning, only having just seen the episode several minutes earlier. <laughs> no, that's that's right. And that's the, the great thing. I've been really looking forward to this as um, we've gone through the week, because... As everybody knows, we've been doing these reviews as hot takes literally minutes after we watched the episode on a Sunday morning. We're out there giving our instantaneous views without really having time to digest, which is a you know one way of doing it. But now we're going to have our cake and eat it too because we've had 12 weeks to think about some of these things and now we can come back with our, our properly digested thoughts. That's right, and we can look at it as a, uh, a lovely homogenous whole. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right, and... The other great thing about this is that normally, as you know, we try to keep our reviews to no longer than the actual episode, at least, you know, our actual talking part. But we don't have to worry about that this time. No, no. So strap yourselves in. We're going to be three hours. Uh, no, just oh, kidding. No, not three hours, but we will We will, We will. take this chance to actually unpack a few things and, you know, get down to a few of those bigger picture things that we probably haven't had a chance to really talk about in a hot take and... Yeah, hopefully it'll be uh, enjoyable for your listeners as well. For sure, for sure. And we've also got a load of listener feedback, so thank you. Uh, I'll say this at the start of the show, thank you for all the feedback we'll get to later on. Yeah, it's great. We've just had so many tweets, emails, you know, people really engaging with the show and, dare I say, the podcast, which is, you know, really nice. Yeah, hope you stick around for the monthly episodes in the uh, 18 months ahead without Doctor Who. (laughs) Don't forget the Christmas special. Of course, of course. (laughs) where shall we start dave well i think quickly we just need to talk about the fallout from the season finale yes there's been a bit of fallout i think that's a good word for it for mine i've seen a surprising number of people who (gasps) didn't like it and and not just in the way that i was like the pilot turned up wasn't so keen on that but hey it was pretty good i mean real hate (laughs) It's been funny, hasn't it? There's been a real divergence of views. There's been some people who just said, you know, this is the best finale Moffat's ever done. And I think we're in that category. There were some who go, you know, this is the best piece of television ever created. <laughs> then then there are others who just say, you know what? We've seen it all before. Nothing surprised us. It was very flat. And uh, it's been quite an extraordinary range of views, more than I thought there'd be. Yeah, look, some people saying, look, that just didn't grab me. And I think, my God, okay, maybe elements of it didn't grab you, the elements it didn't grab me. But surely something grabbed you. Surely the moment where he looked up at the the roof and said, I thought there'd be stars or or his speech to the masters or, or even the masters killing each other, if you like that kind of thing. Or, I don't know, the uh, the cowboy symbolism of the, the doctor sitting on the porch with the shotgun in his hands. That was fantastic. There is so much to like about it. And yet there is hate for this, Dave. Welcome to fandom. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, there, there were people out there that hated the deadly assassin in the day. So don't they feel silly now? <laughs> but no, look, it, it genuinely has been interesting. And I think we will try to unpack some of the rationale behind some of the dislike that perhaps has built up across the season because, you know, whilst we've definitely enjoyed this season, there is stuff to dwell down and really take a good look at, and that's part of what we want to do tonight. Oh, for sure. Some other fallout before we move on with that, though. There was, I think, 
a fair amount of surprise out there that the new Doctor wasn't shown. It seems a lot of people believed in the concept that, oh, yeah, we're going to see the new Doctor. I guess I did to some degree as well. I thought it was a very big possibility. Uh, that didn't happen, of course, and so a lot of people were very disappointed. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's amusing and entertaining and, and fascinating how uh, fandom or any group of, of, of humans can suddenly take a theory or a desire and, and believe that it's actually a real thing, like not just that it's a theory, but it's a fact. And then when it turns out their theory wasn't right, they get really upset when, you know, it never was anything more than just a theory. It was a great theory, mm. but it was, it, sorry, it was also a bit of a long shot when you really think about it, though. Yeah, but I guess Moffat has been teasing that this would be a different kind of regeneration. So people thought, oh, well, maybe we'll see the new Doctor because, hey, they've been filming the Christmas special. Someone may have already filmed the regeneration scene. They slot it in here and then we go backwards and we see the Doctor before he regenerated at Christmas. Wouldn't that be timey-wimey and weird and cool? So it kind of made sense to people. And the power of belief is very, very strong. <laughs> if you believe in something, it's real. Yeah, look, it was, and I think it was also compounded a bit for some people who thought they were going to get the next Doctor and instead got David Bradley. Yeah. Now, you saw some stuff straight away, and then after we recorded that episode, I started to see it too. Someone had collected together uh, Twitter comments from people thinking that he was the next Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which I, I get that. If you don't know who... William Hartnell is, then you, you wouldn't know. And and the other thing is, look, David Bradley did a very good William Hartnell performance in An Adventure in Space and Time, but he doesn't really look that much like William Hartnell. Like, he looks different enough that if you saw him coming out of the snow and you didn't know about An Adventure in Space and Time, you wouldn't necessarily instantly go, he looks exactly like William Hartnell. Oh, no, that's for sure. And just on a side street to that, he's wearing a yellow wig in these publicity photos. Have you seen this, the picture of him in Capaldi? I have, yes. He's What's with that yellow wig? It's, it made me start to think, oh, geez, is this maybe a younger First Doctor when he's still got yellow hair, maybe? Or have they just looked at the Three Doctors publicity stills where I think he does have a yellowish wig and thought, oh, we'll, we'll use that one. I don't know. Well, that's right. We are all assuming that the guy is from uh, the Tenth Planet. Yeah, because he's walking along talking about change. He's in the Tenth Planet sort of location. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he is. I mean, Ben and Polly aren't there. No, that's true. That's true. And he's in better condition than he was at that point at the end of the 10th planet. Yeah, I, look, I agree. So, look, the thought passed my mind. Is this a younger First Doctor? Would that be a bit strange? That'd be kind of cool, maybe? I don't know. Well, maybe, if it is a younger First Doctor, finally, those fans who've been thinking that everybody in the uh, show might turn out to be Susan, might finally get their Susan. <laughs> well, that's right. They could indeed pull Susan into the mix as well. And, of course, it wouldn't mean Moffat was trampling all over your beloved fourth episode of The Tenth Planet. That would be nice as well. So, yeah, we can uh, have educated guesses. We can have assumptions. But let's never forget they're not facts until we know they're facts. Exactly right. Now, that's probably our intro out of the way, unless you've got anything else. No, no, let's crack on. All right. What we wanted to do now was go through the 12 episodes one by one with just a simple one-liner on each and our revised scores. So these won't be the scores we originally gave necessarily, but how we feel about the episodes now. That's right. So we're going to do this relatively quickly. We've said if we both agree, we'll, we'll agree and move on. But I have changed some of my scores. Have you, Rob? I have, I think. It's been a long time since I scored some of these. 12 <laughs> weeks is a long time, Dave. 
That is that is true. So do you want to kick us off? I'll kick us off. The pilot, surprising in the nicest possible way, 8 out of 10. I thought it was a really fun opening, but overall rather shallow, a nice, decent, fun 7 out of 10. Okay. For Smile, this is one that a few fans have been a bit negative about, but I just think this is a wonderful, simple, fun, and gorgeously shot episode. It really was what got me into this season. I'm upgrading this to an 8. Wow, okay. A bit simplistic, now that I look back on it, is the note I've made here. 6 out of 10. Oh, interesting. Okay. Thin Ice was our third episode. It didn't impress me in the way it seemed to impress most people. 6.5 out of 10. I'm sticking with my 8 here. I thought it was a good, solid story. Not perfect, but maintaining the standard. Excellent. Knock Knock. Well, the one that most people have said is the weakest of that first run of five. And I, I tend to agree, but there's still a lot in there to love. Some nice moments, some good performances. I'm going with a seven. Seven? All right. I was extremely excited for it, but it just didn't work. Five and a half out of ten. Ooh. Mm. Okay. Oxygen came up next. Jamie Matheson sure knows how good Doctor Who works. Eight out of ten. Uh, snap for me. Good story. Well done. Eight out of ten. Awesome. Extremists. We're now into the Monk trilogy. I thought the first part worked better than the other ones. It, it had a few faults. The ending was a bit weird, but it was a nice concept, and I'm giving it a seven. Okay. I loved Extremis, and it made me think the trilogy would be more amazing than it turned out to be. There's a spoiler. Eight out of ten. <laughs> Fair enough. The Pyramid at the End of the World. The Monk trilogy gets the wobbles in part two. Seven out of ten. Yeah, look, the Monk stuff in this really w w was weak watching it and fell apart under any critical analysis afterwards. Saved by the day of the Triffids, Survivors, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> subplot. I'm going with a six. Okay. Which brings us to Lie of the Land, where I thought this whole thing fell apart. So many plot holes, so much lack of consistency. Real letdown with the monks going from these awesome, powerful beings to basically just being, you know, modern-day bandrels. Um, I'm giving this a five. Okay. For me, the Monk trilogy ends on a really disappointing note. Six out of ten. Which brings us to Empress of Mars. And note, there's no the at the start. I'm, I'm terrible for saying the Empress of Mars, but it's just Empress of Mars. Not as good as I hoped, but I still think it's one of Gatiss's better stories. Seven out of ten. That snapped for me. I agree with all of that. Excellent. So that brings us to the Eaters of Light. Now, I gave this a higher score than a lot of podcasters and a lot of reviewers, and I wondered if maybe I was seeing something that they're not, but... No, I love the writing, I love the story, I love the vibe, I love the setting, I love, it's, I just love this one. It, it's a nine for me, and I'm unashamed about that. Excellent stuff. I did give it a nine originally, this is one I can remember my original score. I've gone down to an eight out of ten, really enjoyable, although slightly flawed. I still love it, though. Yeah, look, I, I understand that, it's personal taste, that one. All right, which brings us to the second last episode, World Enough and Time. My thoughts are lashings of spare parts and some originality, 9 out of 10. This is one where I've looked back on it, I've rewatched particularly the ending several times now, and every time it's, if anything, got better. Yes, it's got a few faults in its plot, but hell, so does Genesis of the Daleks. I think I was overly harsh. If anything deserves a 10, it's this. I'm upgrading this to a 10. Far out. <laughs> and finally, The Doctor Falls. We've only had a week to look back on this, not even, four days. 
I don't think it was as good as the first part, but there's a lot to love. It was a great finale. I'm still saying the best of Moffat's finales. I'm sticking with my nine. Snap, nine out of ten for me. Not perfect, but gosh, it was a close run thing. Fantastic. So, yeah, some changes there, but overall not a bad set of numbers. No, no, we, we did disagree on a few. We got a couple of snaps, though, as well. So, Dave, I'm sure you've done the math like I have. What do your 12 scores average out to? Mine average out to a 7.6. Mine average out to a 7.3. That shows how close we were. Yeah, look, it, it does. And when I first did that calculation and it came out as a 7 point something, for a few moments there I thought, oh, that seems a little bit harsh. I've really enjoyed the season. But I actually think it does sum this season up well. Uh, there's no real clunkers for me. There's really only one outstanding classic. It was just a good, solid, fun season. And, and something in the mid-7s I think does accurately reflect that. Yeah, I had a similar thought, actually. I was surprised by it being a seven, because I'm thinking, gosh, I'm giving eights, I'm giving nines. You know, these are all good scores. And then I realized mm, a few have pulled it down. And, and But yeah, so, somewhere in the sevens is solid, and somewhere in the sevens is precisely the kind of series we've been talking about for these past 12 weeks, one where nothing has stood out, as you say, but they're all reasonably good. Yeah, look, I think, I think that sums it up nicely, which segues into our next area, which is how does this season... Capaldi's final season compare with his first and his second seasons eight and nine I guess there's a few ways we can slice up this pie and we'll get to them all I'll start off by saying in terms of ratings at least UK ratings it's not compared well at all the consolidateds have mostly hovered in the low to mid five millions for this series a couple were even under five million even when consolidated uh, meanwhile, Series 9 mostly hovered in the low to mid 6 millions and Series 8 hovered in the low to mid 7 millions. Yes, TV has changed, <laughs> so you expect the overnights to be worse, that's a given, but maybe not the consolidateds, not to this degree. That's like a 2 million drop-off in consolidateds over, you know, a couple of series. It's uh, it's not so good. No, it's not, which is disappointing. I, I, I found this season has at least been more consistent than the other ones, and perhaps it's been less self-conscious than the other ones. I, I really felt that in Capaldi's first and particularly second season, there was this need or this attempt to try and work out what the series was doing and how Capaldi's Doctor was going to work. And do we do arcs still or do we do non-arcs? We do single episodes or no, maybe we'll try two-parters or we'll try two-parters but then not do two-parters. Yeah. There was just this sort of up and downness all through the season of, you know, is it the Matt Smith era continued or is it completely new and... This, to me, felt a lot more consistent, it felt fresher, and it felt more fun. I'd agree with all of that, and something we've already touched on is, you know, to me, notably, Series 10 had no single story that blew me away when I watched it. There are certainly stories I like, you know, you've just heard me give some 9 out of 10s, but they're not stories where I was sitting there and thinking, I can't believe how good this is, I can feel it in my being, that this is very special. You know, capital V, capital S, very special. I am watching history. That's how I felt when I watched Blink or Listen or Heaven Sent. I had this sense that I was watching something special. But here, even with those last two episodes of the series that I happily give 9 out of 10 to, I just didn't have that feeling. So even those weren't classic classics to me. But overall, it was a very consistent series, as we're saying. You know, 11 of those 12 marks I've given there were 6 out of 10 or higher, and my average was 7.3. So I think, well, yes, this was very consistent, but nothing really grabbed me. But I think I like a series like this. Look, I would certainly rather a series like that that is consistent in its quality and its funness and its enjoyability 
than one that's trying too hard and sometimes reaching and succeeding and sometimes falling. Mm. I, I, I actually do think that World Enough and Time is going to be up there with the heaven sense and the blinks and the listens. I, I really think it, it will. And the empty childs and the human natures, you know, though that, that sort of me is that, that subset of classic new stories. And I think this will fit in there, particularly when it's had a little time to age. But I, I've come back to what I said right at the very start of this run of reviews, Rob, which is, to me, Doctor Who doesn't need to try too hard uh, to be something that it's not. Mm. It, it At the end of the day, it's about this bloke that goes for adventures in space and time in a police box. Mm. And that, to me, it allows you to go forwards in time, backwards in time, see wonderful futures, evocative pasts, magical alien landscapes. And we got that this season. And to me, if Doctor Who is just giving me fun adventures in space and time, that to me is Doctor Who. That's what I want. And I've been asking for this. Let's face it. I've been asking for this for the entirety of the Moffat era. <laughs> yes. And I've got it. Yeah. I've got it. And, you know, I can't criticize that. I've, in fact, I have to praise it. I've got exactly what I wanted this season. Yeah. No, that, that's completely fair. And I guess we're talking about the Doctor now. So in terms of the character of the Doctor, I won't talk about Peter Capaldi, but I'll talk about the character of the Doctor here, you know, compared to Series 8 and 9. I think the character of the Doctor's gotten better and better each series. And I look back and see that angry Doctor in Series 8, and I think he's a bit of a turn-off. You know, even though I liked it at the time, I think you really want the Doctor to be likable. You want him to be sort of a kindly uncle whether that's a youngish uncle or an oldish uncle it doesn't really matter just someone who's not going to bite your head off <laughs> i think dave you know and I, I get the whole am i a good man arc i get that they did it better than colin baker's era where they tried to do something vaguely similar but i ultimately think that series eight was a huge misstep they could have made him distinct from matt smith without resorting to all that she's my carer so i don't have to care you know and all that sort of business yeah, and again, I reminisce about that that first Capaldi series. I remember watching uh, Deep Breath, and and it felt you know like a Matt Smith story, and even lines like you know I speak dinosaur or whatever it was. I just thought, oh, it's it's Matt Smith's dialogue, and I thought that's okay. It's the first episode, but Into the Dalek, mm. Into the Dalek is not as big a mistake as the Twin Dilemma was for Colin. It's not nearly in that category. No, but I do think it will go down as being a big mistake because. I know for myself, and I know a lot of other people, watch Into the Dark and just thought, this Doctor is unpleasant. He's not alien. He's not different. He's not indifferent. He's, he's actually nasty. Yeah. And it took a long time for Capaldi to really grow out of that. And, and I don't think he really hit his strides until Under the Lake when I finally thought, that's it. That's how you play the Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I agree. And, and I reiterate, you know, th those early stories of his first series – you know, we'd see the, the clip of what was coming in the week ahead and my wife and I would look at each other and just sort of giggle and be like, oh, yes, he's like Malcolm Tucker. This is really funny. This is really good. But no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to say I was wrong. And in hindsight, it just doesn't work. The doctor's got to be that kindly uncle. And, and to that extent, putting him in, in the university and having him age a bit and everything, I thought that really suited the Capaldi doctor well and actually allowed that character to come out. That earthbound setting, uh, that university setting, actually contrasted him better than, I think, some of the other things. Yeah, it certainly suited the way he looked, the way he speaks, the way he projects himself. All of those things, 
Yeah, and and in fact, when he did get a bit too spiky, a bit Series 8 spiky, I think it was the third monk story where they're back sitting against that ruined statue and he calls out to one of the students um, in a disparaging sort of way. I was like, ooh, why are you talking like that? Mm. <laughs> you know, oh, that's how you used to talk. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. And I think the other thing that was really good about him is is the relationship between him and Bill. Now, some people love Clara, some people don't. I tend to fall more into the, the latter category. But I think that Clara was such a forceful, some would say feisty, some would say arrogant, however you want to categorize it. She was a very forceful, in-your-face character, Mm. which meant that the Doctor had to sort of either be covered up by her or look weaker in contrast to her or be more spiky and arrogant himself. And yes, I get that, that character arc they were trying to do with Clara about... You know, her arrogance was going to eventually be giving her comeuppance. And that's not bad if you look at it as a theoretical or an academic proposition, but it was just the companion being arrogant for several episodes in a row and the Doctor being even more arrogant to counter that. And here we've got this wonderful dynamic. We, we've just got a normal person. Yeah. Bill is just a normal, nice person who loves going on adventures, who wants to learn about the world. She, she's the kind of woman that... I think a young kid watching this would want to be the kid that's always got their hand up in class going, can you tell me more? I want to read more about this. I want to know more about this. I want to see the world. Bill's that person and she's nice. And that lets the doctor be nice. It does. It does indeed. And it all comes undone, Dave, in the last episode when she becomes magic space oil. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Shall we keep going on Bill then? Well, we can keep going on Bill, but I'll keep going on Bill by talking about Clara a bit myself because... You know, what What a good, refreshing companion Bill made. And I think it's now common to say this, but you can go back through my social and, and see the contrast here to me saying that continuing with Clara in Series 9 was a mistake, to my mind, uh, both from the point of view that she was going, which signposts to fans that she's either over the show or thinks a better offer's on the way. Otherwise, why would she be thinking about leaving? So it already sort of signposted that the fans, fans felt a bit funny about that to some degree. And then, of course, she stayed. But also from the point of view that I think Companions should only be a one to two series proposition anyway, not because I want to see Companions get bumped off or moved away quickly, but because Doctors themselves only last about three series these days. And I'd like to see Doctors up against different Companions, at least two or three for each era. And I think Clara had just stuck around one series too long. So that when Bill stepped in, she only had to be halfway decent. And I think everyone was going to go, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Where have you been? But the fact that she was quite a good character and played particularly well by Pearl Mackey just made her, you know, go into orbit. Look, I absolutely agree. I think that it's very rare in the history of the show, going right back over 50-something years now, that a companion who crosses over from one doctor to the other is as successful or more successful with that second Doctor. Now, Liz Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith is the obvious exception to that. But generally speaking, I think that companions don't work as well with a second Doctor, and they, they should leave with the Doctor or, or just before. Unless, in the case of someone like a Tegan or a Nyssa, or maybe Adric, they've just started relatively soon before the Doctor's regeneration. Oh, sure, I, I would agree with that with Nyssa and Tegan, but Adric, I think, is a great example of a character that works really well with the Doctor he was written for and with, with Tom, and never quite is the same or as good with um with Davo. 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 <laughs> Mate, Davo. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, no, I agree with that. And, of course, he, they bumped him off, and I think that was a good move. But Pearl Mackey, gosh, what can we say about her? She's such a talent. 
And again, just being so new and fresh, this series, I think, just woke a lot of people up. And uh, people who I'd been saying all of this to for a series, like, you know, Clara's still hanging around, this isn't so great. Once they got a taste of Pearl Mackie, they were like, oh, yeah, I get it now. This, this is really good. Imagine if we'd had two series of her. That that really is the big unknown, is I think that could have been great. But I hope that when Chris Chibnall takes over, he looks at, at just how good Bill was and how much I think fandom and the audience generally reacted to it. And this just proves the companion not only doesn't have to be, but in my mind shouldn't be the impossible girl, the girl who stuck around, the girl who's special, the girl who can, I don't know, make rainbows come out of her nose. You know, <laughs> just just... Be a companion. Just be one of us. I'm glad you said nose then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I completely agree. And something I didn't get around to saying on our review of the last episode, Moffat's left Chibnall in a pretty good place with, with Bill. You know, she is engine oil. She's dripping all over the floor. It's terrible. But the Heather character explicitly says, I can make you human again. And I see that as an incredible out that if Chibnall did want her, you know, you could start an episode with Bill being magicked back to the uni. Oh, gosh, I'm making chips again, you know, <laughs> and and she's back. But would the doctor know to go and pick her up? I don't know. Yeah, look, I don't know whether we're going to see that thread picked up in the Christmas episode or not. Now, I would hope there'll be something because emotionally the doctor thinks that Bill's been killed. So we need to see either his reaction to that or him finding out that's not the case, I would have assumed. Well, you know, it's Christmas, so anything is possible. They may even use Magic Oil Girl to go back and get Nardole, which was one of my beefs about that episode. They save everyone except poor old Nardole. Look, yeah, look, you're right. We'll, we'll talk about that, I think, in a moment. But I want to talk a bit about that aspect of Bill leaving and, and the way it's done. And I want to here mention a theory that I first heard on the on another Australian podcast, Flight Through Entirety, and, and take their theory and sort of expand it a little bit. Because in one episode, they talk about how there's two types of companion exit there's the companions that you know all throughout their time are naturally at some point going to outgrow the doctor and leave ian and barbara you know are going to want to leave at some point tegan's independent she's going to want to leave at some point turlow is with the doctor for a while while it's fun but you always know that sort of at some point they've got a life outside the doctor then you've got the companions who decide the best thing they can ever do is travel with the doctor and they want to do it forever and therefore they actually have to be forced to leave they can't choose to leave. So Jamie and Zoe are evicted from the TARDIS by the time was. They're forced to leave. Otherwise, Jamie would, Jamie would never have left the second Doctor. He had to be forced to go. Uh, Sarah Jane Smith, the Doctor has to force her out of the TARDIS before he goes to Gallifrey. Uh, Adric has to be killed. You know, the, 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 So if, if a companion is sort of committed emotionally to staying with the Doctor, you need to force them out. Now, take that into the new series, where I think if I had to pinpoint the biggest critique or criticism I have of the new series... It's this hero worshipping of the Doctor, mm. making the Doctor, you know, the oncoming storm and people run away when he blows his nose and the, <laughs> the companions think he's the most special, wonderful person and, you know, Wilf, oh, you can't die, you're the wonderful, but just spare me. You know, yeah. if you make the Doctor somebody that you are hero worshipping, then you have to be even more forceful in separating the companion from them. Yeah, why would they want to go? Why would they want to go? So... I think that's why we see these really intense forced exits, including Bill. Bill had reached a point where, you know, why would she ever leave the Doctor unless she was absolutely forced to? Well, especially at this stage, because she's only just gotten going, really. Yeah. Know? 
I, I mean, I do have this theory of having only one series companions or two series at most. And someone like a Martha was a great one series companion as well. But it, with Bill, it felt like mm, there was maybe a bit more. She might have been a good two series companion to my mind. Yeah, look, I think that she could have been, but uh, we didn't get that. And I think that either way, her ending was always going to have to be a wrench yeah. because there was no natural way in which she'd go, I've, I've moved on from the Doctor now. I, I'm going to stop doing this. You know, she she would have explored the universe for all her days if she could have, which which adds an extra level of tragedy to her exit. Yeah, no, I, I agree, although she now gets to zip around the universe with Puddle Girl, so... Well, yeah. unless they get to know each other and realise they don't actually like each other that much, that could be awkward. <laughs> yes, because they haven't done much of that yet, have they? And I've got to say, that line where Bill says, I'm going to show you around, I thought, Puddle Girl's probably going like... <laughs> You know, please, I've been all over the universe, all through time. You're going to show me around? Really? Yeah. The start of a beautiful friendship, that one. Fantastic. Speaking of beautiful friendships, Nardle. Yes. I found Matt Lucas a strange casting choice in that Christmas special where he first popped up. It felt so much like stunt casting. It felt like J&T had risen from the grave and gone into the production office and said, here's what you should do, guys. Get Matt Smith in. And it wasn't a particularly successful episode anyway in a lot of ways. So when I heard he was coming back, and not just coming back, but, oh, we've written him into even more episodes than we thought he was going to be in, I was thinking, oh, my God, what are they doing? How did you feel? I, I certainly agree. I thought his casting was odd. And I think, look, we know that there was a deliberate change in tack with him. Originally, he was just going to be in for a few episodes, and then they put him in to be a companion proper for the whole series. That, I think, shows in the writing. I think, as, as we identified early on, he is just a bit of a comic relief in those first few episodes, mm. and I found him annoying in that. Once they gave him a character, I started to like him, and he proved me wrong. I, I, I was very negative about the casting. I was very uncertain. So you felt similar about that Christmas special, that he was just stunt casting, and then to hear that he was being brought back for real when he was just a head in a robot? Yeah, I just thought it was kind of ludicrous. And, and his performance in those first couple of episodes did prey on that fear i thought he's just here to give a couple of naff funny one-liners that you know sound like some second-rate script writer from an episode of roseanne has given a couple of lines too <laughs> yeah like oh i wouldn't go in there if i was you yeah but as he got a character he became a lot more worthwhile and a lot more likable and he did grow on me i, I think that you know there were definitely a lot of moments when i thought he, he annoyed me i don't get me wrong but Overall, I, I didn't mind him. Yeah, and that that's that's very cool. And for mine, if you go back to our review of the pilot, you can hear me on that podcast immediately change my tune and say, you know what, I think he's going to be okay. And overall, I think he was. You know, he might not have always worked for me like you, but I can't think of anything he did that I really, truly hated. And I, I hate the word hate, but, you know, I'll, I'll use it there. He didn't do anything that annoying for me. Some things I didn't like, but he was never really annoying. And there were some many moments I quite enjoyed. So I think he was a great success in the end. And again, I've got to presume he's a single series companion, and that's going to work out fine. You know, um, I guess always leave people wanting more is a, is a nice way of doing things, both with Bill and uh, Nardol. Look, I, I absolutely agree. And particularly when, as a lot of fans have speculated over the last few days, Nardol's in a lot of trouble. A couple of weeks' time, those Cybermen are back and... Gee, I hope he gets off the ship. Maybe he'll find another shuttle and then tell us it's a shuttle. <laughs> Shuttlecraft. Shuttlecraft. 
I still don't know what's with that scene. That's so strange. It was odd, wasn't it? Yeah. So, look, the two companions in this series, and I think even the nature of having two companions was something different, something, you know, New Who viewers haven't seen a whole lot of. I mean, Jack popped in for a few episodes with Rose, but on the whole, it's just been a doctor and a female companion. This was something different. It was, and they were also very flexible and clever, I guess, in that when they needed two companions, they could have two companions. But if they didn't, then Nardle couldn't just stay on Earth. Yeah, it wasn't a case of, oh, Nissa's got a headache and she's gone to her room or, you know, any sort of crap, you know, decisions yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay, so we've spoken a lot about what's actually on the screen. Let's, let's talk a little bit about production and, and issues there. Sure. One beef that I've got with this series, and it's increased as the series has gone on rather than decreased, is something we flagged a few few weeks ago. What I will call the inverted commas the script editing. There were to me a number of things in this that pointed to me that there was an issue somewhere with the script editing. I'll give you a couple of examples, okay, and, and then 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 tell me what you think. Um, example number one is the Monk trilogy. There was a massive inconsistency in terms of the plot. There's a massive inconsistency in terms of what the motivation of the monks were, things that were set up in the first episode, you know, or in the second episode, you know, why do they need consent? Why do they want to do this? What what the hell do they want to do with the earth? Why do they want to conquer the earth? You know, all, all of that, their powers and everything was completely inconsistent between those three episodes. Yes, they had different writers, but, but where was that script editing role smoothing that all over? I think that with Nardal, we didn't see a consistent... Arc. It was it was broadly by line of best fit going in a particular direction, but it was still didn't feel like there was a script editor going, no, no, by now that stuff's sort of over with, we're doing it more this way and, and smoothing that all out. Most importantly, though, the number of little bits in this series that were thrown up and dropped, to me also made me worry. It, it felt like a really bad series of Grange Hill where a writer would come in set up a plot in one episode, and the next writer would completely ignore it in the one after that. Mm. Yeah, Nardle being dead on the floor of the TARDIS to all intents and purposes at the end of um, the pyramid at the end of the edge of the world. The TARDIS suddenly dematerializing on Mars and going back to Earth for no apparent reason other than to start to set up the Missy plot. Just all these little factors really have me going more than any series I've seen. This, this felt like something in the writing team or the production team was missing a trick somewhere. Am I being too harsh? No, I don't think you're being too harsh. And I'll say, how about Bill being really eager to pull off her oxygen mask, no, her helmet, I should say, in uh, Empress of Mars? Exactly. It's those things that, to me, in a series being made in 2017, with all the preparation and planning that goes into it, you know, don't forget, they've had 18 months to put this series together. Yeah. These mistakes shouldn't be there. And I think we do have to call them out and ask, who was or who wasn't doing that level of script editing? What was the showrunner uh, asleep at the wheel in some cases? Was he half checked out? Yeah, look, for for large parts of this series, it felt like there was never one solid hand on the tiller, even though there should be, because that's what Moffat's there for. 
I think, you know, we're hearing that Chibnall will have a writer's room and I think having several, you know, passionate writers at any given moment standing around a whiteboard, well, at least this is how they do it in my imagination, Dave. They stand around a whiteboard and sort of map these things out and draw things in boxes and draw lines between the boxes and say, well, if this happens here, this should happen here. You know, surely that's got to be better. More more brains are better than one thinking about these problems and, you know, we'll get a better deal out of it than just one showrunner writing his own stuff, editing his own stuff, I assume, uh, rewriting other people's stuff and then trying to remember everything that's happening in every story and, you know, every look that the Doctor gives Bill or, or any little thing that happens, you know, that, it's impossible for one person to remember. So surely the writer's room is going to be a big improvement in this area. I, I would think so. I mean, the writers in a writer's room do pitch to each other and present to each other and thrash things out. And, you know, one person might be overall responsible for shaping a script, but... They, they still share it with the room. So if the writer of episode nine says, oh, then we get this bit where Bill takes off her helmet, the writer of episode five goes, hang on, hang on I'm, I'm writing a bit where uh, that happens and it's really, really bad. Uh, so you might want to factor that in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that writer's room could add that extra level of consistency that wasn't here. And I, I always think it's dangerous when there's one person in charge of a show. I think a lot of really good shows worked where there was that second person whether it's harlan ellison with jms on babylon 5 whether it's chris boucher with terry nation on blake seven um and all the doctor who you know hinchcliffe holmes let's dicks jmt christopher hamilton bid you know you know that to me tv works best where there's that creative tension between two people and i think maybe we have allowed showrunners too much power in the new series yeah, or at least the original showrunner did, you know, such a good job. And I know people out there are, you know, choking on their Wheaties or whatever. I mean such a good job in terms of he resurrected the series, he got it up and running, and it became a success. Whether you like his individual episodes or not, I, I don't particularly care. But I mean that in that he got it up and running, so that became the model, and Moffat simply continued the model. But I, I agree with you, Rob, but I would also add there that if I could change anything in the RTD series... It might be to give him that, that two I see, that lieutenant, who occasionally could say to Russell, you know what, mate, you've gone a little bit too silly there, just a little bit too far there. Maybe you want to pull that back. Maybe that's not as clever as you think it is. It would help, but you wonder whether someone like a Russell or like a Stephen would uh, would actually like someone like that hanging around, or are they more like George Lucas? And if they do have a two I see, it's going to be someone like Rick McCallum who goes, oh, George, that's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, George. You know, you watch all those extras on the Star Wars DVDs and Rick McCallum's got his nose so far up George's bum. I just wonder if someone like a Russell or a Stephen, not to disparage them, but I wonder if they'd be more comfortable with someone like that than someone that would actually push them a bit. Whereas maybe Chibnall, through the simple dent of saying, yes, I'm going to have a writer's room, is actually looking forward to that kind of situation. Uh, I can't add anything to that. I think they're really good points. I agree. Thank you. <laughs> Anything else on script editing? I think we probably thrashed that one. Yeah, look, I think we have. I, I really do think that the script editing was the weaker link in this series, and it does show. Mm. All right. Let's move on, perhaps, to the arc of the series. Did it work, and was it needed, Dave? Okay. Oh okay. I feel like I feel <laughs> like I should settle back in my chair. I, I tear my hair out at this notion of the arc in New Doctor Who. And I've been spending the last week kind of trying to find out where it all happened and where this all went wrong. When you look at Series 1, you go all the way back to 2005, 
what people think of being in the Ark, which is that whole bad wolf thing, really wasn't the Ark. That was just a theme that was actually thrown in at the last moment. The, the Ark was the fact that when the Doctor visited Space Station 9 or whatever it was in the long game, that set up stuff in the finale. And when he showed the stuff with the stuff under the console in Boomtown, that set up stuff in the finale. So the seeds of the finale were laid out through the Ark. That was the Ark. Mm-hmm. That worked well. And it was all self-contained because uh, the bad wolf thing was just going back over Rose's time with the Doctor. So, of course, it only went back over that year. I think it then goes a bit strange with the time, with the Torchwood theme because suddenly you're building this Torchwood thing into every episode and it just seems like a nonsense that we went through all these years of Doctor Who, particularly the Pertwee years, without anybody having mentioned Torchwood in the past. Yeah, yeah. And not, not, not to mention the fact that when it paid off, you've got one version of Torchwood, which is this ultra-modern canary wharf you know, millions of dollars, government, high-profile staff thing, and yet this thing in the spin-off that we get is four losers in Wales ordering pizza and screwing each other, you know, in in, 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 in mum's basement under Roaldale Plaza, you know. They're completely, completely disparate things. Oh, I could just see that in TV week. 8.30, Torchwood, five losers order pizza and screw each other. Rated M. <laughs> But, but yeah, so since then we've sort of had this idea that it's got to be this this arc, and I don't think it needs to be. And sometimes it can be really ridiculous. And I go back to last year with the the hybrid. Suddenly, having never mentioned the hybrid ever before in the series of Doctor Who, suddenly everybody's mentioning the hybrid, you know, Davros and the Time Lords and the Doctor. Oh, have you heard about the hybrid? You know about the hybrid. What about this hybrid thing? Mm. You go, where did this come from? And it's made even more ridiculous by the fact that in the last episode, the Doctor goes, well, the hybrid could be us, it could be them. I don't know. Let's just drop about it. And nobody's mentioned it since. The hybrid's so important that it was only mentioned for exactly a calendar year. Yeah, and Ashilda jumps in and says, well, it could be actually you and Clara. Lots of different options were given. And ultimately, whoever it's meant to be, it was said that they would stand in the ruins of Gallifrey and it would be destroyed at their hand and all this sort of stuff. It's like, Jesus, this is really important stuff. But... No, didn't go anywhere. Yeah, which brings us to this year, and, and we didn't need to have an arc. I mean, the fact that the vault was kind of set up as this arc thing, when we were let into it, what, four or five episodes in, and it was the most obvious answer there could be. So you're saying that, that the the vault itself was the arc? I kind of saw it as maybe Missy's redemption. I'm not disagreeing that we didn't need it, but I sort of saw it as her redemption more so than what's in the what's in the box. I think that the vault was a mechanism to try and turn what was a simple character arc into some sort of big, mysterious Babylon 5-esque arc. Missy didn't actually need to be in the vault. Mm, You know, we could have actually got, we could actually scrapped all of that and brought Missy in later on in the series and just had a nice contained arc, a a little, little sort of character moments. But I think you can take Missy out of the first seven, eight, nine episodes, and they'll probably be better for them. I think they were trying to force arc stuff in here that didn't need to be there. It was very light, so I'm not knocking it too hard because it didn't detract from the overall plot in the way that it has in some series. And you can certainly follow the season without following the arc, unlike, say, season six, where if you miss half an episode, you're done. You can't come back. Hmm. I'm going to take a different point of view here and think that Missy could have been in all the episodes, but done, okay. but done in a different way because I keep feeling that they kept it a secret for too long. Like, there's a vault, 
Next episode, there's a vault and someone's in it. Next episode, there's a vault and someone's in it. And we're going to have Mexican. Next episode, there's a vault and someone's still in it. And it's like, come on, you know. I, I thought maybe if we could have got to Missy quicker, you know, we'd have more episodes to sort of see more of the conversations, more of the change that is happening. And wouldn't it have been fun, Dave? If they had gone mid-season and had an adventure with Missy, the first one out of the box, and that was just a silly, a silly romp episode. You know, Missy's out, it's a fun romp. Okay, that was fun, it was a bit weird. Now let's do something bigger. Now let's go to the ship and the black hole. I think that might have paid off better, especially if Missy died, because we would have seen a lot more of her. Um, and it would have been sad. I mean, it was still sad, but you know what I mean. I I just think there was this missed opportunity. Like, I find it hard to believe that first thing out of the vault, they do something incredibly dangerous. You know, I think there was room for maybe a fun, maybe even a Dr. Light episode, a genuine Dr. Light episode with just Missy. And then they give her the big assignment. I think that could have been really good. Uh, that's a very valid theory. And yeah, I, I can see that working. I guess my overall point is that we now seem to be in this place where people say Doctor Who does arcs and, and Moffat does really clever, complicated arcs. And it's like, no, no. When there's a reason to do it, it's really good. When you're just going, oh, well, I guess we do arcs now, so we better have one, and it feels crowbarred in, that that's not as good. And you, you, I think they were a bit in a halfway house with it this time, as you say. And, and the fact that, you know, we, we've both said, well, there's, there are different extremes in which we can go. I've gone one way, you've got the other. Mm. Kind of shows just how, how halfway house this perhaps ended up being. And is it, Dave, that Doctor Who does arcs or that modern TV does arcs now so Doctor Who feels it has to compete with what's on Netflix? I think that it's a misnomer to say that. I think that modern TV does serials. Okay. You know, these series, yes, episode two leads into episode three, leads into episode four, but it's a linear plot. It's it's not something like Babylon 5 where a throwaway comment in season one matched with another throwaway comment in season two plus a bit of background in season three, and suddenly in season four you put all these things together and you go, oh, wow, this all put together actually makes something even bigger. That, that that's, that's an arc. What most TV does is really just a serial. Hmm. What about something, though, like a Riverdale or, or a Dirk Gently or something like that? Oh, look, they, 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 I think, do do more so. I mean, they're, they're ones that do leave those breadcrumbs through. Hmm. And they're also a lot more niche, aren't they? That is true as well, yeah. I, I look at something like Madam Secretary, which is a bit more mainstream. And, and yes, there are threads that go across the course of the season, but they are incredibly linear. And things do happen at convenient times rather than disparate and separated times. So... I, I think that mainstream TV does do serials more than it does arcs, and, and arcs are a little bit more niche because they, they kind of have to be because the problem with something like that is, that, as I said, if you miss an episode, you you can't just sort of go back. If you're to somebody who says, I'll watch Doctor Who when I'm home, and if I'm not home, well, that's okay, I'll miss it, as opposed to I've got to argue it, I've got to tape it all. I don't know if people tape it anymore, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. Uh, that, 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 is, that is a harder thing to do, so... Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure where I'm, I, I ended up on that, that thread. <laughs> Hopefully I made some sense to you. you. You did, you did. And look, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. It's all well and good to say this, but coming into the, the, the seat now is Chibnall, who is the king of arcs when you look at stuff like Broadchurch. 
And the vibe seems to be that he's gone to the BBC and said, I'd like to do something a bit different. What if he's pitched something like a broad church to the BBC where the doctor lands in a, in a town and he's investigating a mystery across 12 episodes? I, I would be very sceptical about that. I think what made this season work was that when you scrape away the little amount of arc that there was, you just had 12 fun adventures, everyone different. Different localities, different themes, different tones, different monsters, different characters. That's what Doctor Who does. Mm. You get in the TARDIS, you arrive somewhere completely different, and you have an adventure, and then you're back in time for tea. I agree. I agree. But, you know, Chibnall has pitched something, quotation marks, different, and I just wonder if it is something more along the lines of a broad church. And could that be exciting to the accountants if they only have to be in one town or all on Earth or something like that, rather than having to build a different set each week for the different adventures they're on? I get what you're saying. And I know that Chibnall's a classic Who fan. We've all seen him on that video where he has a, a go at John Nathan Turner on the telephone. Um, but <laughs> could, could it be something like that? Because, again, that does appeal to bean counters. There would be a delicious and horrible irony if the guy who was so negative about Trial of the Time Lord decided to have, let's base it in one place with one set that we can use again and again and again, an overall theme going for 12 episodes. <laughs> Could that be the theme of our next uh, set of series reviews, Dave? Uh, well, it's possible. <laughs> Anything's possible at the moment. We're talking 18 months away, I'd say. Oh, definitely. We are, we are definitely in the realms of Schrodinger's Doctor Who at the moment. Yeah. I would say so. Is that it for the arc? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what have you got next for us? I just want to use the Helen Lovejoy phrase, why don't someone think of the children? <laughs> yes. Uh, simply because several times now in our reviews we've mentioned this, and I think it is an important point. Has Doctor Who forgotten a little bit about the, the six-year-old, the ten-year-old that should be the next generation of fans with this series? I love this series. I thought this series was great. But I'm a sad middle-aged man who spends his Thursday evenings doing a podcast about a sci-fi show. So, hey, you know. That, that makes two of us. <laughs> yeah. Was this pitching too high for a primary school age kid? Ooh, it's a good question. And we've touched on it briefly in past episodes. And I've, I've had a bit of a think about it since then. I'm going to take a different tack and, and not answer that directly and say that we seem to live in an age where things are less tolerated these days. I mean, you think of universities and they, they're now having to give trigger warnings in certain mm. subjects, which, which I find absurd. Mm. That, that's a whole rabbit hole in itself. I, I won't go down that. But that's an example of how things are less and less tolerated these days. So maybe it's not that Doctor Who is so much of an R-rated video nasty that, you know, is maybe a bit above those kids and what they should be watching. But certainly things that wouldn't lead to a battered eyelid in 1975 do need to be acknowledged these days. I mean, did the the demons go out with any supernatural warnings? Um, no. <laughs> Even something like Ghostlight with the bodies in the drawer and all the creepy goings on, that never had a horror theme warning. I think we're a bit soft these days, Dave. That, that's my opening gambit on this. I think we're a bit soft. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I guess the question then is, if, if you're right, and I think you actually are, does Doctor Who have to adapt to that reality? Well, you know, you're asking, I guess, what does it mean for the show in the future? I think if Chibnall wants to be different, he can't push in the same areas that Moffat was pushing in. He can't take it 
any further than I think it's been taken. I don't think it could go any further for the time slot. So he might have to go for a, a brighter, funnier, friendlier sort of show if he wants to be different. Which is weird when you consider that he wrote Broadchurch and what that was all about, like the killing of a child, or even a Torchwood episode like Countryside where people are being carved up for meat and being mm. hung up in that house. Um, yeah. But, but maybe he wants a change. Maybe a brighter, funnier, friendlier show might be really appealing to Chibnall. And that's certainly where he has to go if he wants to be doing something different to Moffat, because I think Moffat did push it as far as it could be pushed. Yeah, well, I think it's a really important point that we need to sort of have out there in the zeitgeist, because... Look, I don't really care whether Doctor Who's pitched for these people. In fact, let's face it, you and I would probably like Doctor Who to be a little bit edgier and darker from time to time. That's fine. But if the 10-year-old kid isn't saying at 7.30 on a Saturday evening, come on, everyone, we've got to watch Doctor Who, then the chances are mum and dad aren't bothering and the teenage brother or sister who wouldn't turn on themselves, but hey, if it's on, I'll watch it, they're probably not watching either. Sadly, yeah, I think you're right. Or if the parents are going, look... I know that little Johnny likes Doctor Who, but we'll watch it first, and then if it's okay for him to see it, he can watch it on iView. That's, again, taking away that family tea time uh, audience. Yeah. So, look, maybe Doctor Who does need to go back, and maybe... I mean, we keep saying Chibnall will do this and Chibnall will do that. Part of me hopes he will do something a bit more family-friendly and fun, even though, yeah, I I might like some harder sci-fi at times. And yes, I did like the body horror of these last two episodes of this series. Yes, 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 yes. But Doctor Who's all about change, isn't it? Look, that's right. At at the end of the day, I actually, if I want to watch something a bit adult or dark, I've got plenty of series on my bookcase that I can pull out and watch. I don't need Doctor Who to be that. that. Doctor Who's my fun fix. It's not my dark, edgy fix. Yeah, I mean, before we came on air tonight, I was watching the second season of Killjoys with my wife. And although that is hilariously funny in places, it's also quite dark. People are getting stabbed, shot. They're leaving green goo on the floor. You know, Killjoys fans will know what that green goo is that I'm referring to. And, you know, uh, there are other programs out there. That That's for sure. Yeah, I've been, I've been working my way through Black Mirror recently. And their episodes, you know, you could only watch one. You've got to go into a you know, quiet corner, just... just Whimper? <laughs> yeah, damn, just cry and sob and get your mind back to good places before you can watch another one. Yeah, yeah. And I, don't, I don't want Doctor Who to be that. Doctor Who is Doctor Who's my fun tea time watching. Well, the fellow who makes Black Mirror, I think people were saying at one stage, this guy should make Doctor Who. Oh, my God, could you imagine oh, that? <laughs> no, no. And, 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 you know, again, I come back to the fact that this series did get that close to it. I think... It, so many of these episodes were just fun. I I probably wouldn't have noticed if it wasn't for the ABC putting all these warnings out the front and suddenly I'm going, oh, gee, hell, we're mm. getting, you know, 15-plus warnings on Doctor Who. What's that about? Yeah, I, I don't think we ever got as close as Doctor, we've prepared a pig for you, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> and again no. people who have watched the show will know what i'm talking about i'm not going to discuss yes. it here uh, no. but yeah it did, it did get very dark that's for sure fair enough anything you want to raise rob i think there's a question i asked when we were looking at the last episode but i'll ask it again and talk about it a bit as well and that's is this was a fitting way for capaldi to bow out because i think it was you know while this series didn't have the high highs it was really solid as we've discussed it was the most solid series for a while and 
that's not just me. That's even people out there on social, people who might not listen to this show. They're all saying that as well. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm picking up on something real here. It's not just some sort of, you know, fever dream that I've had that, you know, it was like that. It, it seems to be a fairly well accepted sort of thought out there. And I think that's a pretty good way to go out. What about you? I'm actually disappointed that there's going to be a Christmas special because I thought this was such a perfect way to go out. I said last time I had this Legopolis style sense of doom it's this impending sense of death and the end and tragedy coming and it built it up so well and capaldi had wonderful lines and played it so well that if he had just stepped out of that tardis cried no and regenerated i thought that's it Mm. that's perfect 10 out of 10 yeah i don't know that i'll be saying that at the end of an hour of good christmasy fun well, you know, there have been some spy photos. We won't go too far down this rabbit hole. There have been some spy photos from the Christmas special, and it's got people thinking all sorts of things about where this could go. For example, you know, there was a picture of two TARDISes. I'm, I'm sure that's not a spoiler, because we know there's two Doctors in the story. Of course, there's another TARDIS involved. And just where they were parked, which I won't reveal here on the podcast for fear of spoilers, but it made people think of a, a certain second Doctor adventure. And... Uh- yeah, yes. I, I saw some of this speculation, and my God, people have fertile imaginations, don't they? They do, but Dave, those two TARDISes are parked in a very interesting sort of location. Oh, I think people were seeing things they wanted to see, frankly. I thought they were just parked <laughs> in a field. <laughs> for all I know, that's just where they were dropped off by the lorry before they went where they were needed for filming, you know. <laughs> I'm not reading anything into this. I'm sorry, Rob. I think it's, I think it's just imaginations run wild. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I'll come. I'll get my head out of that rabbit hole and say for the final time. Sorry, this... sorry about that, but no. No, no, that's fine. For the final time this series, shall we go to the sports desk? Let's go. And welcome one last time for this series to the Sports Desk, where on this occasion we will be giving out our most valued player of the series, our play of the series, and our fail of the entire series. So I'm going to kick off here with our most valued player of the series. This is a big one. This is the big one. Sometimes in sport, sometimes in television, you have a star who just, you know, you want to encourage others, you want to give it to others, you want to look for the alternatives, but... Your star player just puts in such a stellar year. You have to go with the obvious. And I can't not go with Peter Capaldi as the doctor for this in what I think is his best season to date. Very well selected. Not a snap, though. Oh, fair enough. Well, look, I will, I'll just say then as well, had Peter Capaldi just had this season or had his performance been like this for three years, he would now be my favourite new series doctor. Oh, that's more than fair. He's in this series was spectacular. And in, you know, series eight and nine, there was individual stories where he was quite good too. Even in series eight, there are great performances. So yes, if he was more like this, good God, he'd be everyone's favorite doctor. I think from new who maybe even doctor who for all time. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but you haven't gone with the doctor. Who have you gone with Rob? Dave, I have gone with Pearl Mackey. Yeah, I thought you might. The the desire was so strong to give it to Capaldi because it's his final series and he's been astonishingly good. And I think I think it was only Empress of Mars where I thought he flagged. So, you know, Capaldi was right up there. But I'm going to say this, and maybe this is a bit controversial. I think it's fair to say we almost expected it from him because he is such a great actor. 
Pearl, meanwhile, was the unknown. She was coming from behind the eight ball. I remember prior to this series starting, you'd flagged how, you know, the, the, the press and the pre-publicity was, was quite low. And, you know, why could that be? And I said, well, look, one potential reason is they've got something special on their hands and they're keeping their powder dry. But we didn't know. And she's just zoomed in. And although the character would occasionally be inconsistent, that's more of a writing thing, not an acting thing. Pearl was always just sensational, and I think she's been the talking point amongst everyone out there on social that we look at. People are always saying, Pearl is just amazing, Pearl is this, Pearl is that, and she's just come from nowhere in this series, just one series. I I couldn't go past her, even though Capaldi was so close for this one. People aren't going to believe we didn't coordinate this and make sure that we both had both of them win, but we didn't. So it's worked out it's worked out really well. I'm I'm actually really pleased that they've both got a gong from each of us. Excellent. Who's your play of the series, Rob? Yes, play of the series. This this is hard because when you think of plays, you think of scenes or you think of, you know, plots maybe. And I thought of a few and I thought that was, that's really good and I started scratching down a, a, a sort of a response and some notes. Then I thought, "No. No, it's got to be bigger than this. It's 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 the series we're talking about here." So I'm going to give the play of the series to Stephen Moffat. And the play is this. He's sitting there, Dave. He's he's realising that Chibnall, the anointed one, can't take over Doctor Who and make a proper transition with the end of his era when his era was meant to end. So rather than let the BBC toss a journeyman or journeywoman showrunner into the mix for a series, someone who's not going to be up to speed and they're probably going to lean on Moffat anyway and ask him a million and one questions, even though he's off writing Dracula or whatever the hell he's going to do, he decides he's going to do it one last time. You know, Even though he's written all the Doctor Who he thought he'd ever write, even though he probably feels bereft of ideas. Moffat says, right, you bastards, I'm going to do this one last time. And what he does is create the most solid series of Doctor Who in a long time. And that, to me, is a great play. That's my play of the series. That's a really good call. I I really like what you're thinking there, and I agree with everything you've said. I've gone in a different direction, though. I think that sometimes a match or a season can turn on a goal. It can turn on one kick that just transforms a season transforms the team or it's just special and memorable and for that reason my play of the series is a little moment and i've gone with i'd hope there'd be stars oh one of my favorite lines as you can tell because i've referenced it this episode and the previous episode yeah i just thought it's the moment that i think will just stick in my mind's eye from this series it's a, a wonderful moment it's a final moment it's the, the the visuals are composed so lovingly and so beautifully. The performance is perfect. The music is pitched right. The lines are lovely. The sentiment's even better. I think this is the, the, the little moment that's going to stick with me from this series, and I'm giving that moment my play of the series. And I can see what you mean if he had regenerated there or, or soon after. Gosh, that would have been even more powerful if that was his final line ever in Doctor Who. Oh, how good would that have been? Some Someone on YouTube, go and do us that. Yes, please, <laughs> if you haven't already. There's been a lot of good things on YouTube this series, actually, like some of those black and white clips from the last couple of episodes. Yes, the conclusion of World Enough and Time, done in black and white with 60 Cyberman music, you know, space adventure and everything. That was wonderful. It almost made me think, did Rachel Talale make that, with black and white in mind, because just the way she had things spotlit, when they turned it into black and white, it made it look like a creepy 1920s 
you know, sort of Nosferatu or something, you know, it, it looked amazing. It just didn't look like, you know, someone had turned the colour off. It actually looked like it should be a black and white film. Yeah, and let's just give her a little bit of praise. In a year when suddenly with Wonder Woman, I think female directors are going to get the level of respect they've never had before. Isn't it fitting that Doctor Who's had such a great female director do some great episodes this year? Absolutely. I mean, she's been around for a little while now. Has she been in all, all three of Capaldi's series? I th- I'd like to think she's directed something in all I, three. I think so. I think so. And I think she's really got the swing of Doctor Who now, and she's just, she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Which brings us to our foul of the series. Yes. I'm wondering if we're going to get a snap here. Well, I thought about a few options here. I, I thought about aspects of the way that Bill was written out. I thought about aspects of the Monk trilogy. I thought, that's just that's too easy. And then I thought, who's had the most utterly deleterious effect on this season over the course of 18 months? My foul of the series, for that reason, is the BBC PR team. Wow. Not a snap. <laughs> Let me say, Doctor Who is now no longer a show where it's John Nathan Turner, Eric Saywood, and the secretary running the Doctor Who office and doing everything, approving merchandise and doing publicity and answering fan mail and making a series. This is a massive industry now with scrolls of credits and dedicated PR people who are busy tweeting and spying on podcasts and doing all the planning and, and making sure. And if you're spying on this podcast, tune in because this is about you guys. <laughs> yes. These people are paid to make the show better and to publicize it well. These people, however, it started off by them utterly and completely screwing up the announcement of Pearl Mackey's bill, releasing some absolutely awful pre-season trailers that just completely had everybody up in arms about the way Bill was done. They could not have given her a worse start. They could not have had a less exciting build-up to the series. And then they go and spoil the most important reveals of the series. Never mind about spoilers coming in the Daily Mirror or fandom or, you know, Ian Levine hiding under a desk. This series was spoiled by the PR team of the BBC telling us that Missy was going to be back, telling us that John Sim was going to be back, that there were going to be Mondays in Simon, cutting uh, next time trailers that made it completely obvious who was going to be in the next episode and what was going to happen to them. And the worst part of this is they didn't even lift the ratings by doing it. So they failed at their purpose and were awful doing it. <laughs> yeah, the ratings went backwards. Dave, I, I agree with you, and I wonder, is it like they had a, a lack of confidence in the show, maybe? I think that the problem is they were so busy. It, it, it's Earth Shock Syndrome again. It, it really is Earth Shock Syndrome again. They were so busy wanting to get the slap on the back from the fans on social media, they forgot they were pitching a television show to a general audience. So instead of giving us trailers about the cool monsters that were coming that would make the proverbial young audience member hide behind the hypothetical couch they were giving us hey guys john sims coming back hey guys there's mondaysian who puts mondaysian in a press release for the general public (laughs) these guys are lunatics they are up their own asses they are wanting fandom to love them fandom does not love them i'm giving you my foul of the week you would the worst thing about this series bbc party and i hope you're listening very good well said (laughs) but as i say not a snap 
In Not fact, a snap, okay. <laughs> I'm going for something you mentioned in your opening remarks is a very easy response. So this is my uh, easy response to this. <laughs> That's okay. My foul of the series was the Monk trilogy. Yeah, fair, fair call. It seemed a very obvious place to go by a, by a country mile for me. Because while it's fine to have the odd episode that doesn't hit the mark in any series... To create a trilogy, to sit down and actively say, well, this is going to be a trilogy and there's three different writers, uh, Moffat and other couple of blokes, and then Moffat, I think, tag-teamed on one of the episodes as well. You know, you're making the Doctor blind, you're setting this up as the mid-series big deal in capital letters. It needed to be a hell of a lot better. I mean, Extremis got things off to a good start. We both like Extremis very much. But the next two episodes were very, very disappointing it's like they all agreed to the idea half-arsedly. Like, oh, yeah, we'll do this. How will we do this bit? Oh, but, uh, we'll work it out. We'll work it out later. And the further they got into writing it, the more they struggled with it and took some shortcuts, and it just didn't come out well at all. It could have been great. It could have been amazing, but it's not. So to me, no. that's got to be the foul of the series for mine. I, I think that the fact that no one on the production team looked at those three episodes and at some point said, uh, quick question. Why are the monks invading? Anyone know? Give us a line, as you would say, Dave. Just, yeah. we need a line. Yeah. That, that, yeah, I think that's a very fair call. And, and you're right, it's the linchpin of the series, and it was the weakest link. Yeah, we just need one line. You know, we're here because we like KFC, and we're after the nuggets. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't care what the line is, as long as it's there, and there's something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I think, I, I'm, look, we can pat ourselves on the back a bit here. I think that... All of our awards there are ones I'm very comfortable and happy with, I think, and very representative of the season. Wonderful season, but, uh, yeah, some, some, some worthy bouquets and I think a couple of very worthy brickbats there. I think so. Shall we get to our listener messages? Because we do have a lot of them. <laughs> we do. Thank you so much for engaging with us. We do appreciate it. What have we got? Well, we've got ones that relate to the Doctor Falls uh, specifically, and we've got ones relating to the series overall, because obviously we asked for feedback on both things. So let's kick off with the Doctor Falls emails. Our first is from Martin Oates via email. That's uh, Beer is the Answer on Twitter. He has a podcast himself, Beer O'Clock Show, Opinions. Get it, Dave? Beer Opinions? Well done. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Very good, Martin. He says, well, your last episode was a monster one, but from one podcaster to another, don't worry, and if it's good, and it is, they will listen. Oh, thanks for that, Martin. I'm writing this four days after The Doctor Falls aired on British TV, and I have viewed this episode three times. No other episode in this season has been so privileged. It hit all the right notes in the right order, nothing annoyed me, and everything pleased me. Highlights. The outstanding performances of the three regulars, along with the Master and Missy, but special praise for Pearl Mackie. She really hit the heights, and if that was her last performance, and I really hope it isn't, then she has departed with her head held high. I love the contrast of the cyber cities and factories compared with the outdoor scenes where the main action took place. The storytelling and direction was great in this episode, and although the Bill cyber scenes did remind me of Clara in the Dalek, and that's a really good point actually, it was so well done it didn't bother me. Sad that the Doctor might not remember that Bill lived and will never know that Missy was going to stand side by side with him. I think there might be an incarnation in between the Master and Missy. You heard it here first. But I was happy with the ending, as it did tie in nicely with Episode 1. Yes, it was a love-rest moment, but well executed. The Doctor regenerates. Oh, no, he doesn't. 
it was okay this time as it was within the context of the story. The William Hartnell Doctor was a lovely touch, although it confused my girlfriend as she thought it was the next Doctor. There you go, Dave. There's one for you. There you go. Uh, A nice one for the fanboys. Speaking of my girlfriend, she found this episode dark, and for now we may have lost a fan. Well, Martin, you've got, I think, 18 months to get her back, so <laughs> anything's possible. Go show a city of death. Yes. Uh, he continues, I'm intrigued to see how they play the Christmas episode. I have a few theories, but there's plenty of time for that. Potentially, we could see four Doctors with two regeneration scenes. That's all for now, other than to say, well done, guys. Love the show. Well, thank you very much for that, Martin. Thank you very much, Martin. And to another of our regular correspondents this season, and we do appreciate it, Wanda, who tweets at fishy underscore Wanda on Twitter. She sent us an email and says, Hi, Robin Dave. I absolutely loved the final episode of this season. There was a lot going on, and there were also a lot of things that were finally answered within the episode. After listening to your podcast, I noticed that I agreed to a lot of both of your points. There were instances that when you single them out made me cringe, but I quickly forgave. I think the only point that I somewhat disagreed with you both is in regards to the whole Nardal being left behind. Yes, I think at least Bill should have checked in on him. The Doctor was a little busy. The discussion Nardole has with the Doctor and the Doctor tells him someone has to go up there and look after a lot of scared people day after day for the rest of their lives and keep them safe. When I heard the Doctor say this, I personally think it was his way of telling Nardole that there was no way he would be the type of person to sit every day for how long they had left to live for looking after a group of people. He couldn't even stay on Earth for long looking after a vault within this season. Yeah, okay. I get that? Yeah, fair. I was in conflict with myself with the ending. I loved Capaldi, and I really don't want to let him go, just when it seemed that the writing was getting so much better for him this season. Though, in agreement with you, Rob, it does seem that he will leave on a high note. In saying that, I honestly hoped that we would have a glimpse of the new Doctor, something that the BBC hadn't spoiled, uh, thank you, <laughs> something the BBC hadn't spoiled and would be a complete surprise for everyone watching. Yeah, true. Very much looking forward to the Christmas special. Heard theories already that it would be a Christmas Carol type episode, which I think may include a montage of great scenes from Moffat's era. Kindest regards, Wanda. P.S. Cannot believe some people thought that was the new Doctor Who that appears at the end of the finale. Well, you've heard it here, Wanda. People did. Yeah, they sure did. And there is that clipping going around on Twitter, which is quite funny to look at. I just want to say, uh, with regards to it being a Christmas Carol type episode, that's what a lot of people are saying. Of course, Moffat has already ripped off that story once uh, in his era. I think he might go for more um, It's a Wonderful Life, which is a similar sort of thing. But that might be his inspiration this time around. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a very reasonable guess to make, but maybe he'll go something different. Maybe he'll go a bush Christmas. <laughs> now, there's a very Aussie thing that I don't think many people will get in the whole... We'll be off to uh, Wikipedia now. Yeah, classic black and white Aussie Christmas film. Absolutely. What else have we got, Rob? Uh, also on this final episode, Ezra Penny has written in. Hi, Ezra. He says, Hi there. I just finished your podcast on the Doctor Falls and sad that I need to turn off you and who talking to write this. Oh, well, you, you don't have to, Ezra. <laughs> You can keep listening. Um, But I think it is a fitting end to Peter Capaldi. But first, Bill Potts. I know that last week I said I hope this conversion was final and I didn't have a moment of, oh, God, it's like the side brigadier all over again in the pre-titles. But apart from that initial moment of dread, I was fine with the way she turned out. Those shots with the mirror and the hand were fantastically directed, all apparently practically done. Pearl Mackey was amazing, as always, and really pulled off what it would be like to realise that you're a Cyberman and also what you would think. Nardole was also great, showing off his hacking and eagerness to help. I almost cried in the exit scene. 
The Masters, Michelle and John, both knocked it out of the park with their performances, and the Master definitely seems able to stab themselves in the back like that. And finally, the Doctor. Peter Capaldi was phenomenal in this episode. It makes sense that 12 would be frustrated with constantly changing, and I also cried at the no, no, no scene. Now I see what Stephen Moffat meant when I saw him at the Hay Festival, not bragging or anything, and he said that this time it will be a little more complicated, and with Peter you really can believe that he doesn't want to change. Also, a huge round of applause to Stephen Moffat for making a series of Doctor Who without a bad episode in it. His writing has been great this year, and he managed to avoid having a spectacular finale and then have the Doctor die in some mundane way in the Christmas special. Great tie-in with the end, Bill becoming at one with the puddle. As a way of getting her out without removing all of the threat of the Cybermen converting you, I'm incredibly hyped up, and Christmas can't come soon enough from Ez Penny. That's a really nice sentiment there, and look... I have to agree with what you say there. A season without a real dud. But at the end of the day, you can't ask for more than that. We have to keep praising this season in this episode because we can be critical, but so much good. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to the start, my my closest thing to a dud this series was Knock Knock, and even that was pretty much okay-ish. Yeah. Now, before we go on with the podcast, this is Rob dropping in from the future. This is a day on from when Dave and I recorded this episode because we've had another piece of feedback on the Doctor Falls. This is from Ray Phillips in Tampa, Florida. Hello, Ray. Hope the weather's treating you well in Tampa, Florida. I'm sure it's always pretty good down that way. He says, hello, Rob and Dave. I just finished listening to my second of your podcast. Great show, and I find it very entertaining and informational. Well, thank you, Raymond. I hope you go back and listen to them all in time. And Ray continues, I just wanted to throw out a weird idea for the final scene in the Doctor Falls episode. I do not follow Doctor Who Twitterings or anything, so please forgive me if this has already been suggested. I'm a casual viewer, but it seemed to me that when the Doctor regained consciousness in the TARDIS, he was repeating the final lines of previous Doctors right before they regenerated. I particularly liked David Tennant's Doctor and thought this was the case when Peter Capaldi said, I don't want to go. It was like all previous versions of the Doctor were scrambled around in his brain. And yes, uh, Ray, that's absolutely right. That's uh, definitely what was happening. There was also a Matt Smith line. There was a few other the doctor's lines there as well that got me thinking wouldn't it be interesting if he actually started to regenerate in the tardis and he in fact did not stop and step outside of the tardis but instead the christmas special turns out to be a jacob's ladder storyline showing what the doctor's mind goes through as he is regenerating this is how they mentally handle becoming a new person therefore the entire episode would take place during that minute or so it takes for the doctor to regenerate showing the transition from one doctor to the next it would make sense in that scenario a previous version of himself would be there to guide him and make the transition easier i just thought that it would be an interesting and different story to tell have a great day and thanks again for the podcast from ray well thank you so much for that ray some really good uh, thoughts there and uh, as you'll hear us say on this episode that uh, i'm dropping this into we really don't know what's going to happen at christmas but there are a lot of thoughts going around the place so keep them coming and now back to the recording so we have some comments on the series overall. We do. Uh, the first bunch of these comes from Twitter, so they're nice and short. I'll grab this first one from Alan Morris uh, at Alan400400. To be fair, this was not a good season. I can go back to the 70s watching it, and this season was very poor, or another way, not very good. Oh, sorry to hear that, fair Alan. enough. That's okay. I've got one here from Jim Campbell, who tweets at, at just Jim will do. Lost me three eps in. I didn't care about the Dr. Bill or what was in the vault. I thought Nardle was an idiotic canine surrogate. Wow. 
Okay. We've got some of the negative ones out of the way, I guess, here at the start. Well, can can I just add, Jim, if you're listening, I would have the same judgment of Nidal maybe after three episodes. See if you can get to Oxygen and you prefer it. Yeah, just grab Oxygen. Yeah, that's a good one. And put that on. See, See what you think. Yeah, good tip there, Dave. Next, we have Sue Berzinski, who tweets at Sue Berzinski. She says, I loved it. Mind you, I still have to watch the last two episodes. Oh, Sue, I think you'll love them. I hope we're not spoiling anything for you here, Sue. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sue, stop listening. It's too late. I've got one from uh, from the Doctor, in fact. Oh, uh, hello. Who tweets, who tweets at Darty underscore 95. Who, who would have known that? It was an improvement on the previous season. I love the relationship between the two masters and finally a character that dies that when returned wasn't brought back due to complicated reasons. Yeah, good call. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I guess the the puddle is both complex and simple. It's it's a very simple thing to understand, but they're doing a complex sort of thing. Mm. Mm. Uh, Richard George, who tweets at Richard George thirty seven, says very enjoyable. But then, why wouldn't it be with no Clara? <laughs> <laughs> a man after my own heart <laughs> yeah both of us I think uh, last two episodes the best in years the Monks trilogy a total waste of time very mediocre well I think you're going to enjoy this podcast Richard <laughs> I think we're in sync there uh, now an email here from David Clark hello Rob and Dave having watched the entire series now I'm giving it an overall score of 9.5 out of 10 almost perfect I think episode 12 was slightly weaker than 11, but still very good. And as much as I love Bill, she should have stayed dead. Really great ending with the first Doctor appearing at the end and got to say great acting by all involved. Definitely Capaldi at his best. Shame to see him go now that he's just got the Doctor right. Anyway, keep up the good work, guys. Great show. Cheers, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave. I've got an email here from Mark Cameron. He says, hello, gents. Well, it's hard to keep this short, but I'll try my best. Overall, I think Series 10 has been one of my favourites so far. The chemistry and relationship between Bill and the Doctor, and therefore Mackie and Capaldi, was one of the best since McCoy and Aldred for me. Matt Lucas was a great foil when he was around, and I will miss this ensemble. Add Michelle Gomez, and there's some beautiful big finish fun to be had. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure there will be, actually. Uh, the Monk trilogy was the weakest for me. There we go again. Um, I could go in depth about this, but I think they would have worked better separately it out more well that's an interesting thought Mm. um obviously the nature of their conception means that that couldn't have happened but it's a nice idea to me given what was going on for Stephen moffat though it's understandable that these didn't get his full attention i guess by that he just means writing the other episodes and script uh, editing i i suppose uh the finale was the best in the revival so far world enough and time being a true 10 out of 10 piece of perfection there you go he agrees with you dave and the doctor falls was a great follow-up too i echo others who are happy bill got a happy ending especially given clara got a second life it'd feel wrong for bill not to have one that's an interesting point i can i can both see that point there and then i also think oh they kind of got the same ending as well that's Mm. Yeah, no, I hadn't looked at it that way. That's a that's an interesting perspective. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, two last points. Having Daleks just as a cameo, question mark? Interesting, given past comments from Moffat. And the vault was made into too big a thing. Make it clear it's Missy and the mystery is how and why she's there and the anticipation of what she'll do when she gets out. That's a very good point too. I could mm. go on, but we'll stop now. Keep up the good work from Mark. P.S. Enjoyed your monthly show. Interesting chat as usual. One thing I thought about was that it would be good to hear comparisons about audience share and chart positions as well as figures it seems we're watching less tv over here and that's a really good point mark because i think this most recent episode of uh, doctor who the finale 
I think got something over three million, not a huge amount over three million, but it was twenty five percent of the viewing audience for that night. So although the figure sounds crap, it's actually a quarter of everyone watching television. Yeah, it's an important point. It's worth raising. And finally, we have one that came in about 20 minutes before we switched on the mics. Yes. From Richard Nolan, part-time at 42 to Doomsday. Richard says, Hello, gents. Just a quickish note about my thoughts on season 10 now that we're waiting for the Christmas special. This is the first series I've watched right through since the Catherine Tate season, so about nine years ago, although I came close with Matt Smith's final season. This says something about the upswing quality that I didn't drop off after the first couple of episodes. Can I jump in here a minute, Dave? Because you know, you know Richard, don't you? Oh, very well, yes. How, how does he decide to do this? I, I can't conceive only watching bits of a series. How does he know which episodes to watch and what not to watch? Or is he just taking a punt that the next one will be good or the next one won't be good, so I will watch it or I won't watch it? No, no, he just sort of watches from the start until he stops. Oh, okay. So he might he, he might get three episodes in or five episodes in and then decide that in his limited spare time there's other things you'd rather watch and I'll get back to Doctor Who and never does. Okay, fair enough. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, as opposed to now where... And I've heard this from a number of people that perhaps have been a bit laissez-faire about the other series. And no, they're, they're back to every week. I've got to watch it. The day it comes out, I've got to watch it. I think there was a lot of enthusiasm from people who hadn't been enthusiastic before. But we'll crack on with the email. Mm, my apologies. That's right. Overall, I've really enjoyed watching Series 10. I've actually been looking forward to each episode. Although it's a bit disappointing, Capaldi's best season is his last. Pearl Mackey was a great addition to the cast, and I'm left wondering why Clara and Amy weren't written as well as this. I was a bit worried when I read Matt Lucas was to be in every episode, but I have to admit, Nardal grew on me a little across the season, and I was a little sorry to see him go. My pick for the first part of the season was Oxygen, and it's impossible to go past the two-part finale for the second half, and I agree that it would have been a perfect send-off for Peter Capaldi. I only hope the Christmas special will maintain the tone and give him a strong final episode. Anyway, crossing to the sports desk. Thanks for that. Do I have to grab the music? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he, he's another one that would have grown up uh, watching Graham and the Colonel, so yes. he, he knows the music. Very good. Play of the season. Peter Capaldi's speech to the Master and Missy in episode 12. A great and powerful scene and an excellent restating of the Doctor's beliefs. Yep, I could agree with that. Foul of the season. He's agreeing with you, Rob. The three-parter with the monks. Hey. I was intrigued by extremists, but the second and third episodes totally blew what looked like a promising start. Most valued player? Much and all, as I'd like to nominate Peter Capaldi, I think it has to be Pearl Mackey. Hey, that's two for me. That's two out of three. Two out of three, Rob. Her introductory trailer last year really did her and Bill few favours. Dave will also remember having the 42 to Doomsday discussion around the pre-season publicity, largely focusing on Peter Capaldi and Matt Lucas, and how Bill seemed to have been marginalised. However, I thought she was a refreshing, different companion. I thought Pearl Mackey was great, and it's a shame that she's only going to be in a single season, although we'd have probably said that about Rose at the end of the Exton year, and look how that turned out. Yeah, good point. Yeah, good point. Finally, congratulations to you both on an entertaining and well-presented series of review episodes. Keep punching, Richard Nolan. P.S., did either of you make it through the series of Whovians? Oh, uh, quick answer to that is I watched the first six and didn't watch the next six and stopped engaging with them on social media as well after the first six. I, I really, it really got boring for me. Yeah, I watched one to check out what it was and didn't go back. Yeah. So no. <laughs> yeah, quick answer. No. <laughs> 
Lovely. That was that was a great email. Um, and I, I'm very chuffed that I got two of uh, two from three for the the uh, sports desk. Yeah, no, really good uh, set of emails there. Some agreeing with us, some not. But yeah, as I say, it's it's really humbling knowing that people are listening and want to engage with us. So thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is a good chance to say that we do have monthly episodes that go out where we talk about Doctor Who in general. Uh, we talk about the classic era a bit. We talk about the new uh, stuff a bit. We talk about other stuff a bit, often Babylon 5. <laughs> <laughs> and our next episode, we'll be looking at writers who are underrated, writers who have only written one or two stories in Doctor Who, whether in the classic series or new Who, maybe up to three stories in total. And we're, we're going to be talking about them uh, in our next episode. So if you have any good examples of writers you love who have only written one or two stories, but you think they're amazing and they should have written ten more, let us know. Get us uh, on Twitter or email at hello at the dwshow.net. Yeah, look, please help us with that. That'll be our main topic for next month. But we'll also have a few little side topics. I've got a couple of bits of merchandise I want to mention. And uh, there's an episode of Classic Doctor Who that I rewatched last week. And I'd like to have a couple of sentences about that as well when the time comes. Mm, very good. And I think I'll probably say something about these uh, The Doctors DVDs that I've been buying. I've got the Troughton one and the Pertwee one so far. And they're very good. We need to talk about those. Good idea. Mm. Anyway, we, we won't do our planning here. We uh, <laughs> we know this episode's already gone quite long, but there are still some things we want to say. And, and one uh, from me, because he co-hosted with me, is to thank Paul Schoons for jumping in when you were over in the US, day for a couple of episodes. So thank you very much for that, Paul. Yes, thank you, Paul. Uh, and again, thank you to the listeners, uh, of course, for your support through Series 10 and uh, ongoing. And of course, with our other episodes that we have, like The Letter Lords, which is about to change, actually. I, w I won't preempt anything, but I'll uh, tell you all about it when the next episode of that goes out. They'll be changing format soon. Uh, you and Who Talking, obviously, our Doctor Who A to Z, uh, which is a very irregular sort of thing, but very funny when it comes out. Uh, yes, I am plugging, but you know, uh, for people who've only listened to our reviews, please keep listening to the, the, uh, the channel. There's a lot of good stuff on here throughout the year. Absolutely. So here we are, Rob, 13 weeks after the start of series 10. And I've got to admit when we first thought about doing this, I was a little bit scared. What if the season's not very good? <laughs> you know, would, would, would we have to rock up every Sunday morning and, bag a series but we haven't had to do that no no it's been very good we haven't had to have got a doctor's note to say oh no we, we're not doing it this week <laughs> you know <laughs> or some lame-o excuse we've been genuinely happy with it uh in some ways it's reminded me of when we did class when we did a, an eight-week run last year that was kind of our warm-up for this and that was a series mm -hmm. we, we quite enjoyed as well this one I think we enjoyed more, but uh, two series now where we've done a, a nice little box set of review episodes for people to go back and listen to. And I think I'll like to go back and listen to these maybe in six months' time or 12 months' time, especially because I edit these. I hear them many, many times. So in a, in a little while, I think I'll come back and listen to this. It's, it's always fun to see what I was saying. Uh, yes, so I don't think there's much more to add. It's been a fun series. I've enjoyed talking about it. Absolutely, and and now it's time for a well-earned break, but of course we will be still doing those shows we just mentioned. Dave, thank you so much for uh, for co-hosting for, for 10 of these. Yeah, I know you got that lovely break in, in the US during the, the series that I didn't get, <laughs> but I'm not bitter. No, thank you as always for uh, being my co-host, Rob. It's always been a lot of fun to, to do these. Yeah, no, very good, very good. So thank you again, and to all of you listening, we'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Goodbye.
eight thirty, Torchwood. <laughs> Five losers order feature and screw each other. <laughs> Rated M. <laughs> <laughs>